Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, whether you're a Christian or, or not, we all experience the, the futility of living in this sin-cursed world. I mean, a typical example, you just have to look at your backyard. You mow your lawn and you pull out all the weeds. And lo and behold, within a week or two, there's more weeds coming up. But that's probably just a small aspect of the futility of living in this sin-cursed world. There's other things that we see that, that we see are broken in this world. We see this in our own selves and in others, whether it's diseases, sicknesses, backaches and health issues and cancers and and whatnot. We see issues in human relationships where there's problems in so many areas in our lives that we could face, whether it's in the home or the neighborhood or in the workplace or in school. And then on top of that, we hear of, we experience natural calamities as well. In fact, Melbourne's known for its four seasons in one day. You feel really cold and you feel really hot and then, and then you feel cold again, and then you're totally wet, and sometimes can seem never-ending. And then on top of that, we experience sin from others, hurt from others, even as we hurt others and sin others. And then particularly as Christians, as we stand for Jesus and follow Jesus, part of the futility of living in this sin-cursed world, part of living in this sin-cursed world is that there's going to be people who are going to mock you and persecute you and do all kinds of things to, to revile you because ultimately they're reviling Jesus. And so particularly as Christians during those times, as we, as we go through this day in and day out and experience all that this everything in this sin-cursed world as we are following Jesus, including persecution. We can sometimes be tempted to think, what's the point of all this? And we can be tempted to stray away from following Jesus and just do something else, perhaps. Maybe things will get easier that way. But it's precisely during those times we need to come back to his word and remind ourselves of who God is and how God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. The letter to the Hebrews is a letter that is written by an unknown author to Hebrew Christians who were living in this sin-cursed world, and as followers of Jesus, they were experiencing something of what it means to live in this sin-cursed world as Christians. As they followed Jesus, they were kicked out from their families, they were uh, ostracized, and they were a small minority group compared to uh, perhaps Judaism, which was a major religion those days. And all the other religions in the Roman Empire. And then on top of that, there was persecution coming toward Christians. And so they are are tempted to think, maybe we should turn away from following Jesus. Maybe there's an easy way out. Maybe it's better just going back to Judaism and that religion that we followed for so many years. And perhaps maybe life will be easier. 
And so the author of Hebrews, he writes this letter to encourage these Hebrew Christians to say, no, 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 no. Don't stray away. I want you to persevere. And to help them persevere in following Jesus, what he does is give them a vision of who Jesus is. He says, who you need to understand is Jesus and have a greater vision of him. Because you need to see him for who he is and what he has done and what he's doing and what he will do. And as you see that clearly, that's what's going to help you to continue to persevere in this sin-cursed world all the way to the end. And we find ourselves this morning in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 through 9. And here now the author is going to Talk about the superiority of Jesus, how marvelous and great Jesus is in his humanity. As Jesus became a man. Now I want you to follow the author's argument so far. So you, you get the, what the author is trying to do here. First, the, in Hebrews 1, the author said that Jesus is the final and full revelation of God. He's unlike those previous revelations given during the Old Testament period. They were incomplete. This is the final and full revelation of God that has come in the person of Jesus. And then the author goes on to say, Jesus being the revelation of God, after he did all that he did to reveal God's plan and purpose and fulfill his mission on earth, he's now seated on the right hand of God the Father, crowned as king over all, as, as the son, as the promised Davidic king. Now for those who were from this Jewish background, who knew the old covenant and its laws were given by angels. The question would naturally arise, but is Jesus really greater than those angels as well? I mean, we had the law and the old covenant, all of that through angels and their mighty creatures. So the author spent some time in chapter 1, telling his readers that Jesus is indeed greater than the angels. Tells us that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. That he embodies everything that is meant by that term, Son of God. And that he has a unique relationship with God the Father as a son to a father unlike any other even though there have been small sons in the past, like Adam and David. And so his argument is, but no angel has this father-son relationship with God. And then he goes on to say, as a unique son of God, Jesus is also going to bring a promised future world. That Jesus will come again to establish God's kingdom on earth. Where there will be righteousness and joy and peace over all the earth. Right now what we see is unrighteousness and sadness and war and everything else. But when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, there will be righteousness and joy and peace all over the earth. This world will be made new when Jesus comes again, the author tells us. And the reason Jesus can do this is because Jesus is actually the sovereign creator of the world. In fact, then the author goes on to say, angels will worship Jesus when he comes back again to rule the world and establishes God's kingdom because in that world, Jesus will reflect the perfect rule of God. And the angels will bow down and worship this God-man because they realize he himself, Jesus, is God. And so then the author says, but the angels, 
Yeah, they're inferior to Jesus. They, they will worship Jesus. They're, they're actually just ministers of God who do his bidding. And they can't do extraordinary things like what Jesus does, like make this world or even make this world anew. So then in light of Jesus' superiority, then the author makes a quick exhortation, which we looked at last week in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 2. Where he says, so in light of the fact that Jesus is superior than the angels, that he's so unique, then he takes a quick short, makes a quick short exhortation and he says this, if the old covenant, along with its laws, which was an incomplete revelation, this old covenant and its laws, which was delivered by the angels, an incomplete revelation, proved to be true in that those who neglected the stipulations of this covenant were justly punished, then how much more will be the judgment if for those who neglect this final and full revelation given by Jesus? And for those who doubt whether Jesus and what he says is true, he even says, actually, this message has been so validated by eyewitnesses and by the triune God himself. So then he says, so pay close attention, tether yourself to Jesus, and don't drift away from Jesus and his message. So that's the argument of the author so far. Now an objection could be made to the uniqueness and the superiority of Jesus. Because somebody could say, but if, if this eternal God, if the eternal Son of God became a man and he died, then how can he be altogether be unique and superior to the angels in this state as a man? How can a man be superior to the angels? So doesn't that make Christ inferior to the angels because he has now become a man? So now the author is going to continue his argument to show how Jesus is superior to the angels even after taking human form. So as I mentioned before, we're going to look at the superiority of Jesus now in his humanity and we'll look at this passage under two headings. As the author describes it, first, God's intended purpose for mankind in verses 5 through 8. And then in verse 9, we see God's intended purpose for mankind realized through Jesus. So in order to continue his argument of how Jesus is superior to the angels, we have our first point, which is God's intended purpose for mankind. Verse 5. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now, in this present world, there are certainly, you could say, there's a way in which God has given angels certain governing roles, so to speak. If you look at Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8, It says that angels are responsible for different nations or different regions. And if you turn to the book of Daniel, this becomes a bit more clear. Daniel 10 and verse 13, where it says, The prince of Persia withstood me. And the person who's speaking is himself an angel. And the prince of Persia that he's referring to is another angel, although an evil angel says, the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days till Michael, the chief prince, came. Then in Daniel 10.20, there's even the mention of the prince of Greece. Then we know from other parts of scripture where Satan himself is called as the prince of the power of the air. As Ephesians 2.2 says, or the god of this world as 2 Corinthians 4.4. So when we put all this together, we can say, yes, 
there's a certain governing function, so to speak, that God has given to angels, but there's also a war going on between the angels and Satan and his minions. Now, we can't see all this with our naked eyes. It happens in this spiritual world. But it is something that happens, and it is something that the Bible attests to be true. So the Jewish people would have known all this because they knew their scriptures really well. Now the author is saying, well, sure, you know, you might see certain governing roles that are given in this present cursed world. He says, but these angels, they will not rule in the coming world that Jesus will establish. See, because this coming world is really part of the salvation that we as believers will inherit. See, as far as the author of Hebrews is concerned, salvation is not just purification from sin and being made right with God. It is also inheriting the kingdom of God and all that is coming and all the blessings that are associated with being part of that kingdom. That's why even the end of Hebrews 1 and 14, it says, for those who are going to inherit salvation. So that's the full package. The kingdom that's going to come, that's also part of the salvation. And God is saying, and angels will not rule in that wonderful world. Then the question comes, who will? Man will. Like, okay. So to prove his point now, the author first quotes from the Old Testament. And he quotes from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6 to talk about God's intended purpose for mankind. Now Psalm 8, we have this as part of our Bible reading this morning. It's a wonderful psalm that talks about the greatness of God in all of his creation. In fact, the psalmist, who is David himself, he looks out into the night sky and considers the stars and the moon in the in the sky. And what a sight it would have been. And just to give you a sense of you know, how vast the, the stars and the galaxies are, perhaps even more so than David would have understood then. Let me just give you some facts. It will take roughly about five years to get to the nearest star in our galaxy if we traveled at the speed of light. Five years to get to the nearest star. Now that's not possible to be traveling at the speed of light for five years. It's just, at least right now, it's not humanly possible. But if the current speeds that are there with the spaceships that we have Some estimate that it would take tens of thousands of years just to get to the nearest star with the technology that we have. And to think there are billions of stars in our galaxy alone. And we're talking about just the nearest star to us, the one star. And there's billions of stars in just our galaxy. And how many galaxies are there in the universe? Well, there's estimated to be somewhere between 150 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe. So you can think of the the vastness of the stars and the, the, the galaxies that are there in the sky above us that God has created. And so given the vastness and the grandeur of God's creation just above us, Man appears like a tiny, puny, insignificant being. And so that's what the psalmist says when he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? And that's what he quotes here. Look at verse 6. He says, It has been testified somewhere. That's not because he can't understand, but he just wants to get to, hey, this is God's word, you should know this. So, you know, where it says somewhere else, 
What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? What's the answer? Well, the psalmist answers his own question in verse 7. You made him for a little while, or you could, a better translation would be not so much little while in terms of time, but in terms of degree, as in a little bit smaller, a little bit lower than the angels. So God has made man, this, this puny creature in this vast universe that God has made, lower, just a little bit lower than the angels. You say, how? Well, mankind has a physical existence. And we have all the limitations of being a physical being. We don't have any supernatural powers like the angels. But the angels, they, they are spiritual beings and they have none of the physical limitations that we have as physical beings. So in that sense, man is made a little bit lower than the angels. But here's the wonderful thing that God has done with man. He goes on to say, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So, well, what's this special crown of glory and honor that's given to man? That's, if you think, this is really just a poetic form from Psalm 8 that's really quoting what's happened in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. So when you think about that, what is the special crown of glory and honor that is only given to mankind? Well, it refers to God making man in his own image. And because God has given this special crown of dignity, of glory and honor, man is uniquely able to image God and display God's glory in a way that no animal or insect or even angel can display God's glory. Because he's uniquely stamped with the image of God. He's uniquely crowned with this crown of glory and honor like no other being, created being in this world. And you could say this is really what sets apart man from every created being. Whether insect or animal or even an angel. That he is made in the image of God and is able to reflect and display God's glory in such a unique way. And as a result, man is given the privilege of then ruling over all the earth on God's behalf as his representative. Now, what does this look like, ruling over the earth? One commentator speaking about the ruling of man put it this way, quote, this was to, the, the ruling was to manifest itself in every area. Agriculture, architecture, domestication of animals, harnessing of energy and natural resources and other areas, close quote. So essentially, man was to rule over the earth and make it a place that would be for the good of all of God's creation. And ultimately, it would bring glory to God. It would point to the Creator Himself and say, how glorious is our Creator God in the way man would rule the world this way. So this is the purpose for which God created man. And we see some of this ruling or some of this dominion that man is able to exercise over this world even today. And I want to emphasize it's just a, a small bit of it. We see this in the way that only man who travels further into space and travels deeper into the ocean depths and makes all these discoveries. No other created being is doing that. As man harnesses the, the power of the sun and the wind and other resources. 
man advancing in the sciences and in medicine and in architecture and so on. So that's just a small aspect of man ruling over the earth and exercising dominion. Now that's the quote from Psalm 8. Now the author goes on to give a commentary of this psalm and the present reality of things. Look at the second half of verse 8. So he quotes that, then he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, who is this? This is talking about man. He left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the author is emphasizing that God has put everything in subjection to man so that man could rule over all of creation. But what's the present reality? We don't have man ruling over all of creation. Everything in creation is not subject to man. And so someone might say, well, what happened? Well, what happened is that man sinned against God. In man's sin, he failed to exercise dominion over all of creation. Specifically, he failed to exercise dominion over the serpent, if you remember. And the serpent instead ruled over man. And as a result, the curse of sin and death came into the world and then rebellion and chaos followed. So what happened to man then? Man became spiritually separated from God and he's now under the sentence of death, under God's judgment. And sin has affected the entire human race because of that first man. So much so that instead of man now ruling, when I say man, I don't mean man as in male. It includes mankind, male and female. And instead of ruling for God's glory, man now forcibly tries to dominate in his ruling for his own glory. There's even conflict now between people. And it's not just, this is what's happened to man. Creation itself is under the curse. And now creation works against man. There's thorns and thistles on the ground. And man is met with frustration in every area as he tries to rule over creation. It's almost like creation is at war with man. Why? Because man, you were meant to rule and do things for my good, but you abdicated your responsibility. And it's almost like now creation is at war with man. Here's how one commentator just talking about now the state of affairs in the earth because of what man has done and sin and death has come into this world. He states, quote, If we begin making a list of those things in this world, very evidently not under man's control, it quickly becomes quite large. Man is at the mercy of weather. His food supply, even today, is greatly influenced by forces outside his control. Mankind is starving, bleeding, crying, and suffering all over the globe. Hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, and floods beat against him with unmastered fury. Indeed, man is able to not control his own self, his own passions, or even his own thoughts. A quick look at the newspaper will display this in terms of international, civic, and individual crises that abound on every side. Close quote. You want to add to that? Well, it's not uncommon to read in the news that people are getting mauled by animals. 
just in the last couple of years, we've all seen how a tiny little microscopic virus can create havoc in this world for the entire human race. There's disease and sickness. And like I mentioned at the start, there's even on a regular basis, just looking at the weeds in your backyard is just a reminder that creation itself is under the curse and is at war with man. You know, people often ask, why is there evil and suffering and calamity in this world if there is God? Well, the Bible tells us. In fact, what we read here and the implications of it very clearly tells us. Why is there evil and suffering and calamity in this world? Because man disobeyed God and failed to rule over creation. That's why there's evil and suffering and calamity in this world. So man's intended role, though, given by God, is to rule the world. And when you think about it, yeah, so th this in itself should spark the people to think, oh, okay, so that's not a privilege that's given to the angels or any other creature. Because only man is made in God's image, crowned with glory and honor, and able to rule this way and display God's glory in such a magnificent way. So that's a great privilege. It's a superior role that God has given to man, even more than the angels. But then man sinned against God, and now man is under the curse of death, and so is all of creation. We could put it this way, a slightly different way, that the first man, Adam, sinned against God and lost his ability to rule over the world. And because of the first man, the first Adam, being the representative of all of mankind, the same plight followed for the rest of mankind. So the first Adam was man's representative, and whatever happened to him, the same plight happened to the rest of humanity. And we can all confirm this reality, right? By the, way, by the numerous ways we all have sinned against God in our lives and the fact that we are unable to rule over various aspects of creation. Because the same thing that happened to Adam, who was our representative, has now happened to us. So the question is, so is there no hope for mankind and this world? But what about God's original purpose for mankind? Will God's purpose be thwarted? No, never. Whatever God has purposed, he will bring it to fruition. Nothing can stand in the way of God's purposes, including his purposes for mankind. And this brings us to our second point, which is God's intended purposes for man realized through Jesus in verse 9. But, there's a contrast here, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the author just said, in the present, we don't see man ruling over creation. In fact, man, uh, in fact, creation seems to be ruling man. And everything is run, running amok. But then the author says, instead of looking at man who has failed and this sin-cursed world, look at another man now. See him who has, who has made a little lower than the angels. And who is this other man? His name is Jesus. And who is, this, who is Jesus? He's the one who we were told in chapter 1, who is the creator of the world. The one who sustains all things in this world. 
the one who is the radiance of God's glory. This eternal Son of God has now taken the form of man in the person of Jesus. So without giving up his divine nature, Jesus took on human nature, though without sin. So Jesus now, as this person, is fully God and fully man. But when he took on human nature, he did not have the inherent sin nature. Jesus was sinless. He did not have a sin nature that the rest of mankind had. Though he had all the limitations of becoming a human being when he took on flesh. So what would those limitations be? Well, here's a few. He was born as a baby. That would mean he would need his mother to give him milk. He would need his mother to keep him warm. He would need his mother to wipe the milk off his face. It would mean that Jesus as a man, with all the limitations of man, would have to grow up and learn to walk. It would mean that Jesus as a man would become hungry and he would need to eat. It would mean that he would become tired and need rest. The eternal Son of God took on flesh so that he became fully man without, without in any way giving up his divine nature. Why? So that he would become like one of us. So that he would be our representative as the second Adam or as the last Adam or as the better Adam if you want to call him. I mean, this was an incredible condescension, right? On God's part. To become a man, to stoop so low that he becomes, takes on the nature of something that is below the angels even that he has created with all the limitations of man. But this wasn't enough. That Jesus was our representative as simply as a man who came to live a perfect life without any sin. Jesus also had to bear the consequences of Adam's sin and pay the penalty for his sin and rebellion. And that meant he had to die. That's why it says there that Jesus underwent the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You know the word there for taste? It's not the idea of simply taking a you know, quick sip or a quick nibble. But it has the idea of partaking in full, in that he tasted death in its entirety. That he swallowed up death in full. And this was in Jesus dying for his sins. Oh, no, no, no. He was dying as a representative, as a substitute for others. Where he took the place of sinful man. And he would bear the curse of sin and death. And he would bear the judgment of God and he would die on that cross. And specifically, who did he represent on that cross? Who did he die for? Well, the next few verses even tell us in verse 10, these people that he died for, they're called his sons. In verse 12, they're called his brothers. In verse 13, they're called his children. So you could say essentially Jesus died for all who would believe in him and become children of God. And so he took their place and suffered and died that cruel death, tasting death 
in its full. And once he did that and tasted death in its full ugliness, God raised him from the dead. And God took him into heaven and seated him at his right hand and he is now crowned with glory and honor and he is exalted to the highest level level as the greater Adam, as the greatest man, as the greatest forerunner of a new humanity through whom God's intended purpose for mankind will be realized. What the first Adam lost in the fall, the greater Adam, the last Adam, Jesus restores. And as a man, Jesus will come again into the world and make it anew, ruling the earth after defeating all of his enemies in an ultimate sense. And here's the wonderful thing. For those of us who are believers... For those of us who are his children, we will share in his glory and we will reign, share in the reign of Christ. Listen to Romans 8.17. It says, if you are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and what? Fellow heirs with Christ. Or Revelation 22.5, right in the end talking about that blessed state that we will be in, talking about God's people where it says God's people will reign forever and ever, reigning, ruling over the earth. In fact, so much so that in the world to come, believers will judge angels is what 1 Corinthians 6.3 says. And the angels here are referring to the fallen angels. So why was it necessary for the eternal Son of God to take on flesh? Because the first Adam failed. He was man's representative and he failed and he threw all of creation under the curse of sin and death. And so now you had to have another perfect man who would come who would not fail. And who would that be? The eternal Son of God who took on flesh. So that he might save us, those of us who would believe in him, and restore us to the dignity and the purpose for which God had intended for man when he created man. You know, for those of them who were doubting Jesus and thinking, oh, can't angels be greater? And Jesus becoming a man doesn't doesn't that mean that he's become inferior? No. See, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, by becoming a human being, being the representative for mankind, for those who would believe in him, and by paying the penalty for sin, and now being raised to life, seated at the right hand of God, being a forerunner for a new humanity. That is not something an angel could do. So is Jesus superior even in becoming a man? Absolutely. So what does this mean for us as believers? Well, some wonderful things. The the big thing is what we're promised as believers is that one day and for the rest of eternity because of what Jesus because of who Jesus is and what he has done we will no longer be subject to the ravages of nature there will be no more natural evil no more floods No more hurricanes and famines and pestilence and disease and tornadoes and tsunamis trying to get at man. There won't be diseases and backaches and cancers and paralysis and and cholesterol and coronavirus and whatnot. 
There won't be any futility in work. There won't be any sweating anymore. It won't be difficult work. It'll be joyful work. There won't be any moral evil anymore. There won't be any sin anymore. No one's going to hurt each other with harsh words. There's not going to be abuse. There's not going to be murder. There's not going to be death. There's certainly not going to be any persecution or mockery or being ostracized. No, we will be in a world that is no longer under the curse of sin and death. We will be in a world that is full of righteousness and peace and joy. This is our destiny as believers. To be saved and restored to God, God's original purpose for man. Reigning under Jesus over the earth that he has created for his glory. I wonder if there's someone here listening today that is not a Christian. I just want you to consider the things that we've looked into. Friend, don't you understand if you don't have what the Bible says? You don't understand anything about you and this life and what's going to happen. You are not a product of evolution. You are not something that became as a result of survival of the fittest. You're not just a glorified animal. Oh, you have way more dignity than that. You have been stamped with the image of God. Where you have been given the privilege of glorifying God and displaying glory to God in a way that no other created being has been given. And yet, we all rebelled against God. And God, to rescue man and to have his purposes restored for man, he sent his son to take the form of a man. And he took the place of a sinful person like you and me on that cross, bearing the wrath of God. And he paid sin's penalty in full. And he rose up on the third day so that all who would put their trust in him would no longer have to face the judgment of God, would be made right with God, and would be part of this eternal kingdom of God. Friend, don't you see? That's why the world is the way it is. Because we messed it up. Friend, if you'd like to know more about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you after the service. I'll be standing right there at the door at the end of the service. Or just speak to a friend perhaps or someone sitting next to you that you know is a Christian and they'd be happy to tell you who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Because eternity is at stake if you reject Jesus and his message of salvation. Well, for those of us who are believers, how are we to respond to this message that we've heard that, yeah, Adam, as the representative, messed up, and so we all followed suit. And Jesus, as the better Adam, or as the last Adam, came in our place, and died and saved us and restored us to the dignity and the very purpose for which we have been created. How are we to respond to that message? Pat ourselves on the back thinking, yeah, that's right. That's, that's great. That's wonderful. Because I'm going to be the center of the universe, right? No, no. I mean, did you notice here that Jesus, he suffered death? Why? So that by the grace of God, 
he would taste death for everyone who would believe in him. It's purely the grace of God. See, if it isn't grace of God, in fact, that he stamped the image of God on you to reflect his glory and to have the ability to give him glory, if that's not grace enough, and we rebelled against him, and God would be right to then just condemn us and leave us in that state. And yet God continued to be gracious. And he sent his son who took our place on the cross. So that by grace, he would taste death for you and me as believers. So we wouldn't have to taste that death. So that we would be restored to the original purpose for which we have been created. And we would reign along with Jesus or under Jesus in the world to come. So what should our response be? When we get frustrated in the sin-cursed world? And trials come and persecution come and weeds keep popping up and backaches and health issues and problems and relationships and whatnot. We don't look at fallen man and we don't look at this fallen world. We look at Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor, seated at the right hand of God. And because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we can then have reason to be joyful because we know this is what Jesus has done for us and we know therefore what our end will be. So what we see right now is not the end. So looking at Jesus as king should fill us with joy knowing that our final destiny will be with him. How gracious and loving a savior and king he is. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are thankful for your word. Because it is only through your revelation that we understand who you are and your purposes and your plans and this world and who we are and who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's going to do and why he does what he does. So we pray that as we live in this sin-cursed world, we would not be disheartened or when we are ostracized or persecuted. But it would only cause us to further look at the one seated at the right hand of God, the greater Adam, the last Adam, who will one day come in an ultimate sense and rule over this earth and establish this kingdom in a world that is so different to what it is now and every enemy and every consequence of sin will be done away. To know that we will be with him, enjoying fellowship with him, and reign with him together, giving glory and honor to you. What a great privilege that will be, what a joy that will be. Sustain us with these thoughts, even for us this week and in the days to come. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.